Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. the first three verses of Hebrews, and we saw right away that the book of Hebrews is not so much a book of Hebrews, but a sermon, a sermon of Hebrews. Right out of the gate, this thing preaches. Jesus is lifted up as high as possible in these early verses. See, what these ancient believers needed more than anything was not a research paper that stimulated their mind. What these ancient believers needed was a sermon that stirred their heart. It's as if the early church was kind of in this ultra-marathon race uh, called Discipleship with Jesus. And around, you know, 75-mile mark, you know, after 75 solid miles, uh, toes were bleeding. Things were going numb. And they're starting to drop out. And so the preacher of Hebrews knows that we will not finish this endurance race called discipleship with Jesus. Unless we're chasing ultimate beauty. That's it. We will not continue in this race called discipleship with Jesus unless we are chasing ultimate beauty. Nothing else will last. Nothing else will sustain this thing called discipleship with Jesus. Everybody's chasing something beautiful right now. Every single one of us in this space right now is chasing something beautiful. It's a summation of what it means to be human. Chasing beauty. But even the most glorious things in this world are secondary to the ultimate beauty, who is Jesus. That is the sermon called Hebrews in Nashville. Every beauty, every good thing, the best possible things in this world and in our life are secondary, they're derivative beauties to the ultimate. The only beauty that is worth chasing and honestly the only beauty that will sustain our journey with Jesus. This morning, we get a case study in this ultimate beauty of Jesus and we're looking at verses 4 through 14 of chapter 2. Oh, sorry, 4 through 14 of chapter 1 and the first four verses of chapter 2, which really compares the glory of Jesus to the glory of angels. Now, we might think this morning, angels? What? Um, for you, angels might seem corny. They might seem mythical. I don't know. But to them, in the way that Scripture presents them, angels are as glorious as creation gets. But Jesus is great. And we're going to see why that matters to you this morning, wherever you are this morning, whether you're here seeking out what following Jesus might even look like, or whether you're here as a weary disciple about to tap out. Wherever you are, this matters. This matters more than I know, even as I preach. And so let's read the text together. You can follow along, I'll read it out loud, and then we'll pray to see what God has for us this morning. 
Again, this is Hebrews chapter 1. We'll start in verse 4. Jesus, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. Now in those days, a name meant more than just the, the title you carried. Name really represented, in a way, nature. Your nature. And so, he is more excellent is a more excellent name than the angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Recall the baptism narrative in the Gospels, where God the Father says upon God the Son, you are my son, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. That moment in which Jesus doesn't become the son to the Father, but at that moment in which the Father says, before you do your ministry, before you live for your flock, before you die for your flock, before you are raised for your flock, I am going to declare over you belovedness because that is who you are and who you have been for all of eternity. And what that means to you, friend, just as a side point, if you are in Christ, that is also spoken over you every single day before you can do anything wrong and before you can do anything right. Before you can do anything that pleases and before you can do anything that displeases. You are beloved in Christ. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Hang on to that, angels as ministers. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, he says of the Son, O God. Okay, so he's saying the Son is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of unrighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Verse 14, Are they not all, angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, speaking of the law of Moses right now, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now talking about Jesus. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles in the book of Acts, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This is God's Word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to You. You are our rock. You are our Redeemer. We all right now just take a breath and remind ourselves that you are among us and you yearn to speak to us this morning through your word. So speak and Lord, do the miracle of making our hearts listen. 
fact, make us eager, we ask, to hear from you. To be changed, even, by you, through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think there are two kinds of bookshelves in a home. This is my theory. There are decoration bookshelves and there are collection bookshelves. You know where I'm going with this? So, uh, decoration bookshelves are stacked with unread books. Really no different than a bookshelf at Ikea. And that's fine. As you'll see, that's more than fine. Then there are collection bookshelves that are stacked with read and reread and re-reread books. And they're more a display of your collection. <laughs> the shelf is functional. It actually serves to give you access to the books that delight you, the books that challenge you, the books that shape you, the books that you hope will be with you the rest of your life. Well, one of the first things you see when you walk into our house is a bookshelf. And I wish I could say that this bookshelf was a collection bookshelf. But if I'm going to be totally honest, many of those books are only half read. And some are not read at all. Full disclosure. <laughs> you can tell Brad's at work with me that I can admit that. <laughs> Here's what happens. I buy a book that looks good. I start reading said book, and then I see another book that looks good, that looks better. And so I stop reading old book, I put it on my shelf, and then I start reading the new book. And then that process repeats over and over again. I'm not proud of this. I hope I'm not alone. It's why I love the idea that I've heard of reading your bookshelf. Have you guys heard of this before? Read your bookshelf. Like, stop buying books, stop checking books out at the library, just read your bookshelf. I love that idea because I know, I know I don't need to move on to other books. I just need to pay attention to what is already in front of me. And this is true in all kinds of other works of art, not just books. We go to the art museum, okay? We go to the art museum and we say to others, I've already been there. I've seen that piece. We definitely say this about movies, right? I've already seen that movie. It's like disposable contacts. Sort of wear them once and you throw them away. And this is true in relationships, not just art. We, we sort of scratch the surface with a friend and then we move on. I remember investing in friendships while we lived in St. Louis. But when we moved on to Ohio, we moved on from those friendships. I think this is a clue that we live in a unique cultural moment, a move-on culture. We don't settle down to what is in front of us. We, we move on to something else that seems better. And if this is true of our best relationships, could it not also be true of our relationship to God? We move on from Jesus to something more interesting, to something new, something urgent, maybe. Maybe it's not even on purpose. It just happens. Maybe we think we've exhausted all there is to know about Jesus. Maybe we've experienced the beauty of Jesus in our lifetime, but that feeling has gone away, and so we feel a desire to find that similar rush. I don't know, but I know this is true of the ancient believers in Hebrews. 
They knew enough about Jesus, it says later in this book, to mentor others. They knew enough about Jesus. They have suffered for Jesus and with Jesus. They were mentors. They were, they were mentors. They were disciples. But as we read this morning, they were drifting or neglecting such a great salvation. We wonder, I wonder if they were getting bored of the infinite depths of Jesus. Or I'm wondering if their circumstances made it difficult to just focus on what was in front of them. They were moving on or tempted to move on from Jesus to other things, even very good things. And that's so important to grasp this morning. Even very good things like angels. And so the preacher of Hebrews urges them and us to do one thing. Stay put. Stay put and look at what's in front of you. Like, don't buy the next book. Read the book that's on your shelf. And read it again. And read it again. And read it again. I think you will be surprised at the depths of Jesus. we must pay much closer attention. I think the secret to spiritual longevity uh, that some recently have called sustainable faith or what old theologians would call perseverance. I don't think it's new information. I don't think it's religious or spiritual technique. Um, I think it's that. I think it's that. We must pay closer attention to what we already have. How can we pay closer attention to Jesus? Well, that's going to be the theme of Hebrews, isn't it? But this morning, our passage suggests two unique movements. What I would say is this paying less attention to your distractions and paying more attention to your Savior. And so first, paying less attention to your distractions. In order order to pay more attention and closer attention to Jesus, we must pay less attention to your distractions. That is for free. Okay? That seems obvious. But it's vital. It's so vital it's worth exploring. There are things in our life that can distract us from close attention to the beauty of Jesus. Amen? There are things in our lives, and these things can be immoral and bad, or they can be very moral and very good. The bad distractions, frankly, don't need a sermon. They really don't. Uh, We know what they are, but the good ones do. The good distractions do, because they are harder to recognize, and therefore probably more dangerous. So for... These ancient believers in Hebrews, their good distraction, at least this morning, was angels. C.S. Lewis said, uh, the British author, C.S. Lewis, he said there are two dangers to avoid when it comes to angels. And he was talking about fallen angels, he was talking about demons, uh, but it applies to angels as well. The first is not paying enough attention to angels. Uh, Maybe we're embarrassed as Christians because angels are supernatural. 
or presented in pop culture as corny, or even ancient art, frankly, or confusing at best. But this is an error, a problem, because they are God's creation. And God makes good things. And they're all over the Bible. The second error, though, is paying way too much attention. This was probably a problem that the ancient church addressed in Hebrews. They were more steeped in the story of Scripture than we are. Um, they knew angels were significant. We will learn that, as we read in chapter 2, that angels were go-betweens when God gave the law of Moses. So they probably had a very high view of angels. Angelic activity in the scriptures tend to crop up at significant moments in the story of God. And many of these believers lived in a significant moment around the time of Jesus, his resurrection. It's possible they've even encountered that themselves. And so they have a very high view. So their temptation is not taking too low of an approach. Their temptation is taking too high of an approach. And this is a problem because angels are, by design, not the point. Jesus is. They're quite happy being backstage all throughout the scriptures. They're like stagehands that wear, uh, like at a, at a musical, that wear dark clothing on stage. They're not the point. They actually exist to make the lead the point. The one singing. The hero. And they are, according to verse 14, quoting here, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's you, that's me, and that was them. Those phrases in verse 14, for the sake of others. Ministry. Service. They're like John the Baptist who said, in the presence of Jesus and his disciples, I am not the Christ. And so if we don't obsess over them, if we don't absolutely ignore them, then that, I think, gives us a healthy approach. What one theologian, the late theologian J.I. Packer, called the relevance of angels in our life. And this is what he says. I like it. He says, if at any time we stand in need of their ministry, we shall receive it. And that as the world watches Christians in hope of seeing them tumble or stumble, so do good angels watch Christians in hope of seeing grace triumph in their lives. I love that quote because that's really a healthy approach. Because that's really what angels are about as we read in scriptures. Angels are messengers. So don't kill the messenger, but don't worship the messenger. In fact, angels throughout scriptures are saying, don't worship me. I know you want to. Don't worship me. I am not the point. I think Hebrews does an amazing job of keeping angels awesome and also making them subordinate to the glory and beauty of Jesus. The preacher writes, has God ever said these ultimate things about angels? And the answer is over and over again, he's quoting the Psalms largely, a few others. No, 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 no. Angels are awesome. Angels are good. So awesome and good, we would be tempted to worship them. 
They serve Jesus, not the other way around. And this means that even the most beautiful, catch this, even the most beautiful creations of God are messengers of God's beauty. That's what they are. Messengers, they're ministers. They're not meant to receive our trust. They're not meant to hold the weight of our love. They're not meant to hold the weight even of our worship. They know that. They're sinless. They know that, and that's why they guard themselves even against it. And so let me just ask on the front end, what are those good things for you? What are the most beautiful things of God? What are the most beautiful creations of God in your life that you cherish the most? What are those things? And is it possible that you are tempted to place all the weight of your soul in and on those things? And that is a challenging question. Who or what are you asking to carry your hopes right now? That does not bear the name of Jesus. Whenever I go grocery shopping, I try to carry like way too many bags at once and my car keys and the drink and everything else. You know what I'm talking about? So you're kind of doing this thing. And then eventually, because everything's paper bags now, like the paper bag handles start to give. You don't know where it's giving, but you can hear it. You can feel it. It's like it's in your bones. You're like, something's going to fall and this will be bad. Maybe if I shuffle faster, it won't fall. But what happens is it falls. So what I've been doing is I I sort of kind of do one of these. I get them all on the ground. And then I pick the bag with the most valuable thing. The thing that I cherish the most in that. Usually it's the thing made out of glass, right? And I carry that. And I I, I guard it, actually. I put my hand under it. And I walk that by itself to the kitchen. I have to make that choice. Which bag has the most valuable thing in it? And then I have to put down everything else, even the good things. To live life is to grip tightly on one of those bags. That's to live life. To live life is to find that bag amongst many and say, this is the thing that I ultimately need to hold on to. And even if everything gets dropped, I will be okay because of this bag. Good things are meant to be enjoyed. And to be received with gratitude. But if we cling to them in the same way we cling to Jesus, we will lose them. We will drop everything. We may not be tempted to cling to angels. I'm guessing that isn't a struggle here this morning. But that doesn't mean we're not tempted today to cling to other good things, other messengers even of truth. Good things that point us to Jesus. Pastors, preachers, churches, ministries, books, podcasts. Churches and ministries and pastors are all God's very good idea, but at their very best, and we know when they're not at their best. Even at their very best, they have one design, and that is to point you to Jesus. They cannot sustain your faith. They cannot sustain your faith. They're no bigger than John the Baptist's finger. I am not the Christ. We need to pay closer attention to Jesus. Not the people or the books that proclaim. The second pathway to sustainable faith is closer attention to Jesus. So Craig Coster theologian writes, reading Hebrews 1, which we just read together, is something like looking at a mosaic. 
depicts the image of a person. And so, if you didn't notice, a lot of chapter 1 is offset in the text. What that means is, the author is quoting Scripture, quoting Old Testament Scripture. And what we have here, actually, profoundly, are seven texts, specifically chosen as stones in a mosaic that creates a portrait of Jesus. All of the Bible, as Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, whispers his name. All of it. And so this author is saying, when God was saying this, he was talking about Jesus, not angels. Jesus. Jesus is the, the point of all of Scripture. What it all points to as well. That person is Jesus. And so Hebrews, here at the beginning, is telling us to pay closer attention to this Jesus. Pay closer attention. If we just go down the list of all these scriptures that he quotes, we can say this. Pay attention to Jesus' perfection. As I said, these are seven chosen texts. And that is symbolically important. This is on purpose. Angels are good. Jesus is perfect. Seven being the ancient way to depict perfection. Pay closer attention to Jesus' status. This would be verse 5. As a unique Son of God in whom the Father is well pleased. Pay closer attention to Jesus' rank. Verse 6. He says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. Now, as if you were here for West, when he taught that firstborn often means more than just timing of birth. It actually means rank. And so Jesus as firstborn is basically a way to say Jesus is ranked number one. That's like he is ranked number one. He is God in flesh. There is no rival. And so he therefore is worthy of our worship, it says in verse 6, let all God's angels worship Him. The whole universe is designed to revolve around Jesus, even the most glorious of creation. Pay closer attention to Jesus' good rule. Look at verses 8 through 9. Quoting Psalm 45, 6 and 7. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And if you have any kind of longing for justice in this world, any kind of longing for goodness to, to rule, goodness to reign, or people in authority with a lot of power to do the right thing, that has uh, the, those on the margins in mind, like if that is your heartbeat, that you would see that in action, and then there would be gladness. And listen to this about King Jesus and His rule. Verse 9. You have loved Jesus' righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, Jesus, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Anointed means king, means Messiah, means the one we are longing for, the perfect rule that we all long for, and it only is in Jesus. He reflects Jesus, God's good and glad rule, as God in flesh, and he's a representative king and a representative Israel to all of God's people. And then what happens is he pours that oil of gladness into our hearts at Pentecost with the Holy Spirit. This kingdom is forever. Angels, they're just, as it says, winds and flames in comparison to this eternal kingdom. We ought to pay attention to Jesus' constancy in verses 10 through 13. Verse 11, they will perish, talking about the heavens and the earth, but you will remain. They'll wear out, but you, 
You are the same. And your years shall have no end. In verse 14, pay attention to Jesus' victory. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Jesus put all of his and our enemies underfoot. How? By losing at the cross. Jesus loses at the cross, and by doing so, he wins. Christus victor. Victory of Jesus, of Christ. Jesus wins over sin. He wins over Satan. He wins over death. And this victory is worth preaching about. And angels are the most perfect preachers possible for this. And we see this in the Christmas narrative. We see angels preaching this soon victory. But they are just the messenger. Jesus is the winner. He is the victor. Don't kill the messenger. Don't worship the messenger. Stand in awe of the message. Who is Jesus? Friends, the only way we can sustain a lifetime of following Jesus is if we look closer and then closer and then closer and then closer at Jesus. At this mosaic, at this face, The face here is built for us here. This is the great salvation, as the preacher of Hebrews puts it. After all, neurologists and sociologists and just observant friends will tell you we become what we pay attention to. I say observant friends because if you've talked to me in the last three months, you've noticed me probably saying something I've never said before. We're talking and I'll say, fair, 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 that's fair, fair, or fair game, yeah, fair. It just flows out of my mouth. Now, why is that? That's an interesting thing. Why is that happening? Well, short story, over the last three months, I've been paying closer and closer attention to the world of professional cycling. This is convoluted, but I'll make it short. How do you pay attention to professional cycling? Podcasts. Okay. Which podcast do I listen to the most? Well, the one who says fair after every single point. <laughs> that one. And so I'm hearing this in my, in my earbuds all the time. And so I'm having a conversation. I'm basically becoming what I'm paying attention to. In my manner of speech. But friends, I just want to ask, and I'll ask it myself, what gets your closest attention this morning? We all need to pay attention to, to very important things. This isn't a zero-sum game where you only give your close attention to one thing and drop it everywhere else. No, no. What I'm talking about is your closest attention. Do these good things crowd out the most important thing? Steve Mackey has a phrase I have become aware of lately, and I love it. Because it practicing a preference for God. He says, when we prefer God, we are going to look at God first rather than look at God last in every scenario of our life. And so he actually talks about discernment in this phrase. 
Discernment is really practicing a preference for God. So I just ask you the question, how can you practice a preference for God? I love the way it's framed because that is basically another way of saying pay closer attention to Jesus. When good things come your way, when good decisions come your way, when challenging things come your way, or when temptation comes your way, in any of these scenarios, we can practice a preference for God. We can by paying closer attention to Jesus. Jesus who lives for you, dies for you, was raised for you, is seated at God's right hand for you. Because of Jesus, as it's been said, God never looks at you and says, if you do this, you will be my beloved. He says, you are my beloved. You are my beloved. Some have said there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. Pay attention to Jesus who makes those words possible. Give that your attention. We don't need something bigger. We don't need something better. We don't need anything more. We just need to pay attention to what we already have. That's what we already have. Belovedness in Christ. I love this song that just came out by Andrew Peterson. It's a prayer. And he sings, I want to be where my feet are. And he talks about in the song how he's tempted to run to his fears in the future. Or he's tempted to run and rehearse the past. He wants to be where his feet are. Why? Because that's where Jesus is. I'm going to be in my VR. I want to pay closer attention to what is right before me. Just Jesus in his embrace. Jesus in his face that says, I want to be with you right now. He's everything you need. So Lord, make it so. Make that truth range in our hearts this morning. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about Hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.